Thank you for taking the time to view this message online. You can connect with us more through our comments section of this video, through our Facebook page, or through our website, nhgj.org. This message begins a series of messages that are going to be spoken throughout this summer, and it's titled Revelation, A Book of Worship. And I have a confession to make, is that whenever I think about teaching from the book of Revelation, I sometimes will stare off into the middle distance, wishing that maybe I was teaching from another book of Scripture. I, I jest, I joke about it, uh, but there is some measure of truth to, be, to it, to be honest. And it's not a result of not liking the book of Revelation. I love the book of Revelation. I love God's word. It's really just a result of being around long enough to know that the book of Revelation is one of those that draws two different ends of the spectrum. It tends to be one of those that people tend to line up on polar opposites oftentimes. And really, when we come to the scriptures, we most often want to not be on far ends of spectrums. We want to be more on middle ground. Uh, the, the responses along the spectrum are something like this. On one side, you have people who love a good mystery novel, and, and they're the ones that will look at the book of Revelation as this type of mystery story. They, they view Revelation as a secret Bible code that will unlock end times events. Uh, it's, it's this great mystery. Uh, those who get the end times events just right and they get the code, uh, they will have special knowledge about world leaders. Uh, they will be able to decipher crises and when they happen and or even when Jesus will come back. Uh, and people have predicted dates of when Jesus will come back because they know the code. <laughs> I'm a little bit mocking of this approach because it's such a poor approach to the book of Revelation, but there's so much of it. Uh, people see an apocalypse as a doomsday image with explosions and microchips embedded under the skin or even microchips injected in viruses, tattoos of 666 across foreheads. Uh, understanding the keys, these hidden keys or codes to Revelation, they believe will keep you from accidentally following into worshiping the uh, the Satan that will keep you from uh, falling into worshiping the Antichrist. And it's important in their view that you decipher all of these codes in Revelation because if you don't, you could be duped and doomed forever. <laughs> Understanding uh, this code approach uh, for those like myself who are over the age of 50 and if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you might be familiar with this approach through the writing of Hal Lindsey in his book, The Late Great Planet Earth, where he unlocks the revelation code and uh, ties it specifically to the establishment of Israel as a nation in 1948. And as a follow-up to his, um, that book, The Late Great Planet Earth, in 1980, he had another book called The 1980s, A Countdown to Armageddon. Lindsay predicted that the decade of the 1980s could very well be the last decade of history as we know it. Uh, for those under the age of 50, uh, similar to the works of Hal Lindsey, uh, there's the work of Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. Um, they revive this kind of genre of doomsday 
interpretation of the book of Revelation. And uh, they created the series Left Behind. And it's a biblical fiction work that began in 1995 and now includes 12 titles in the adult series, as well as juvenile novels, audiobooks, devotionals, and graphic novels. And the books have total sales of close to 80 million copies. Um, again, I, I say some things in jest, but there is some seriousness about this because this is not a healthy way to view the book of Revelation. Uh, it's inconsistent with the whole of scripture. Uh, it's led many people into charts, maps, movies. However, there is a very big market for this type of, uh, these types of items as, as I just shared, over 80 million copies sold of the Left Behind series. Um, so this is one way of viewing the book of Revelation. It's a very popular way of looking at Revelation, doomsday, last day events, a Bible code that you have to interpret, all these you know, very symbolic type of images. Um, and if you interpret it just right, you're not going to be surprised. You're not going to be duped uh, into serving Satan. You're going to actually stay with Jesus. Uh, the, the other side, this is the other end of the spectrum, uh, really are those who completely avoid Revelation altogether because it's too confusing, they would say, too weird, too much imagery, too jumpy from scene to scene. It lacks continuity in, in their view. And this is the view that because it's so confusing, why even read it? Why even go into the book of Revelation? So they avoid it altogether. And the, the only thing they might read is it comes up on their Bible reading plan. And so they might read, you know, the opening. They might read chapters two and three, the, the letters specific to the seven churches. They skip over the bulk of the book and then they get into chapters 21 and 22 and they read about uh, the new heaven and the new earth and, and what that's going to be like. And so there's the, the whole center core of the book that is avoided altogether. Well, I... In, in this message, I point to those two extremes because as I've shared in the past and, and uh, strongly view, the best approach to our faith in Jesus Christ rarely lies in the fringes. The way to approach our life with Jesus rarely sits on those outer spectrums. And it's true in the book of Revelation as well. Uh, for instance, if we believe that Revelation is a code book that requires special interpretation that only a few have, that means, by way of that belief, that means that we believe God wants to hide his will from us and he's willing to let the majority of people, including many Christians, experience an eternity apart from him in anguish just because they didn't get the symbols just right or they didn't spend the $10 on Hal Lindsey's book or Tim LaHaye's movies and so this idea is that uh, there, God would will that a whole bunch of people should perish just because they're not very good at reading the mysteries of Revelation. That viewpoint, to be candid, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be as transparent as possible, that that viewpoint is a total contradiction of God's nature and his character. God's word says that he would will that none would perish, and so he gives his son. So it honestly makes no sense whatsoever that there would be a book in the Bible called Revelation that the intent is to confuse people and to hide God's will so that he can cause some people to perish. We can see how contradictory those things are. 
And, and so that idea of this book of Revelation as Bible codes and secret knowledge and only a few get it is really pretty far off base from what uh, is within the whole of Scripture. Uh, it, we would believe this idea that God is not revealing himself, that he's hiding himself, when in reality he has revealed himself throughout all the rest of Scripture and he's made it clear how to get to him through his son, Jesus Christ. He pursued us first. We did not pursue him. We can safely and confidently put to rest this idea that Revelation is a, uh, a book about secret codes that only a few, only a select few will get. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't take the time to do the study to try to understand the symbols. There are a number of symbols in the book of Revelation, but they reference back to Old Testament scriptures, predominantly the book of Ezekiel. Uh, there's a lot that ties back into there. Also the book of Daniel, uh, there's items listed in there. There is hundreds, literally hundreds of references of Old Testament symbolism and scripture that are in the book of Revelation. And just because you and I, oftentimes in 2021, don't get those references, the people that the book of Revelation was written to, so many of them would have. It would have made sense to them and they would have pointed back to, or the teachers of that time would have made those references back to uh, the Old Testament. And so, Again, it's not that people shouldn't do the deep study and find those references in the Old Testament or understand the symbolism that's there. It's that what we shouldn't do is teach it as though it's a secret Bible code and only a few will get, and that somehow it unleashes all of these, who, what the nations are and who's the end times events and who the world leaders are. It's not the intent. That's, that's a whole nother genre that sells a lot of movies and books, but it isn't healthy for the church. On the other hand, if we believe that God gave us a somewhat useless book and we avoid it altogether, or a book that's just confusing and weird and it has very few things worth reading, then we are likewise viewing Revelation in a way that's inconsistent with Scripture. Because we, we know that from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so when we say all scripture, we include the book of Revelation in uh, those works in, and, and in scripture. And so it is helpful for us. That would be consistent with scripture is viewing Revelation in a way that says, this is important for you. This is important for me to read. Now, since I've started out by just taking time to emphasize two approaches we should avoid when reading the book of Revelation, now let me communicate the lens through which we are going to, in this series of messages, be looking at the book of Revelation. Uh, we have approximately eight messages that we'll be doing throughout the next couple of months uh, on, on the book of Revelation. And so uh, there's no way that we can do a thorough, uh, exhaustive study on the book that would take a year plus to do. Uh, so we are going to be looking at this lens or through this lens of Revelation as a book of worship. And we're going to be seeing how this, one of the primary uses of the book is for worship. And it's intended to turn our eyes to Jesus and to begin to worship him more deeply. 
Uh, Revelation was written to the church uh, sometime around 81 to 96 AD. And the, the really focus of this in this time, and we'll see in just a moment when we look at the first uh, few verses of it, uh, of the book, that it's intended to get our eyes upon Jesus and his majesty and his glory and to see him more clearly in contrast to the world's systems and the world's values. So again, it's not a book about codes and secrets. It's not a book that should be avoided, but it is a book about the revelation of Jesus Christ in all of his glory and all of his majesty. I love how Michael Gorman, uh, in his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, I love how he states it. Here's a quote from him, and I recommend this book highly uh, to you, Reading Revelation Responsibly. He says, Revelation is not about the Antichrist, but about the living Christ. It is not about a rapture out of this world, but about a faithful discipleship in this world. That is, like every other New Testament book, Revelation is about Jesus Christ, a revelation of Jesus Christ, Revelation 1.1, and about following him in obedience and love. If anyone asks, why read the apocalypse? The unhesitating answer must be to know Christ better. I can think of no better way for us to begin reading Revelation than with that understanding that it's not about the Antichrist, it's about the living Christ. It's not about a rapture out of this world, but about faithful discipleship in this world. With those words in mind, let's pray, and we'll begin with Revelation 1.1. Lord, we love your word, and that includes the book of Revelation. And so I pray that whatever we bring to the table, whatever our history is with this beautiful book of Scripture, I pray that you would help us just to come open-handedly, not with our agenda, not with our purposes to impose upon your word, but with a willingness to listen to and receive from your word, to allow it to transform us as we see you as you are unveiled in this book. And so we thank you, Lord, for your scripture. It is useful to us for teaching us, for challenging us, correcting us, for encouraging us, Lord, for instruction. Lord, so many purposes your word has, and we want to receive it all as you would impart it to us. So we thank you for it in the name of Jesus Christ, the Magnificent One. Amen. Well, we open to Revelation chapter 1, and with this... Let me just start out by saying it is the revelation. So there's not an S on the end of revelations. There's only one revelation. It's not plural. And it is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1, 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness of the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, 
and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. <laughs> wow, I can't imagine anything more than wanting to worship after reading those verses and just the revelation of Jesus Christ. We jump right in and it really doesn't slow down from there. As I mentioned before, this is not a revelation of end times events. The scripture tells us exactly what it is right from the beginning, verse one, a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is intended for readers and listeners to receive a blessing as they see Jesus more clearly through this revelation or the Greek word apocalypsis, which is where we get the word apocalypse. It's so interesting, isn't it? That when the word of apocalypse is used, it's about bombs and explosions and it's all these things about world and end times events when really apocalypses expresses this revelation. And the revelation isn't about events or things, it's about Jesus himself. You can see how we've got it so bent and focused off of Jesus when the whole intent is for us to see Jesus more clearly. It starts out by saying that this revelation of Jesus is given to John, and we don't know for certain if it's John the Apostle. Many believe it is, but uh, we, we just know that it's John, and so we'll just leave it at there. We don't need to speculate about which John it is. Uh, it's written to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and we'll see these addressed specifically in chapters 2 and 3. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those are the seven churches of Asia Minor. And so it is a letter written specifically for those churches, but with all of Scripture, and it's consistent, the book of Romans, the book of Ephesians, the book of, uh, to the Galatians, right? They address specific congregations and churches, but they're intended for the church. And, and this is maybe no more true than in the book of Revelation, where it's written to the, the seven churches, and we'll look at those in an upcoming message about how those specific churches are addressed. But let me take a minute to note something about the book of Revelation that's important to keep in mind. Uh, Revelation does have a number of symbols and, and it uses numbers through, throughout it. Uh, these aren't codes. These aren't secret things. These are things that are consistent throughout Scripture. And at the moment in which Revelation was written, yes, it's for those, the setting of those seven churches and the churches at large that were functioning uh, at that time that it was written. However, you'll notice over and over throughout Revelation that the numbers 7 and 12 are used repeatedly or variations thereof are used. And, and so while the seven churches are addressed in the letter, the number seven is repeatedly used because God uses the number seven as uh, the idea or thought of completion. 
And this points all the way back to the creation of the world, the seven days of creation. And on the seventh day, God rested and said it was very good, right? He's, he's done. He rests. And so something is complete at that seventh day. And, and so he points to this idea. Likewise, the number 12, you'll see it, the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus, Jesus chooses 12 disciples as well. So you'll see these two numbers specifically because it's consistent with all of scripture. It's not a code. It's not secret information. It's again, something you and I can look back and we can see it repeated throughout scripture, throughout all of history. God uses symbolism and numbers uh, to be able to identify these ideas. Seven being perfection or completeness. 12, again, the fullness of something. Everything has arrived. And so for instance, when you get to a little bit later in the book and there's 144,000, now groups like Jehovah's Witnesses or others uh, you know, have speculated who are the 144,000, what did they do, and, and all of these things, and they look intently at 144,000. Instead of that being the actual number of people, we need to think in terms of 12s. That's actually 12 times 12,000, or a super fulfillment of God's completed work, the redeemed. 144,000 is not the only number that are redeemed. It's a super completion. The, the fullness of the tribe has been reached. And, and, and those who are called, the fullness of Israel has been met. It's, it's 12 times 12,000. So again, not a secret code, not a secret number. It's symbolism that's been used throughout scripture. And so it, it just means a super fulfillment. Everything has been reached or is complete. So unlike groups that use these numbers and codes as for exclusive groups, as I mentioned before, we read Revelation consistent with Scripture, and sevens and twelves are numbers consistently used for completion and fullness. So hopefully that gives you a sigh of relief. You can take some of the mystery about what the sevens and twelves are about. So what's happening in this moment that it's being written, though, this is important because scripture addresses a specific audience whenever it was written. So it's important that Jesus imparts this revelation of himself to the church. So we should ask the question, what's happening? What's happening at the time in which John, who is imprisoned on the island of Patmos, what's happening that he would receive this revelation, that Jesus felt it important to impart this to the church at that time? Well, at the time that it's written, and we mentioned the latter part of uh, the 80s and early 90s AD, um, one of the things that's happening is the, there's a new Roman emperor. Domitian is now in charge. Nero's rule is over. And with Nero, there was intense persecution upon the church. Um, there, was, there was such pressure for the church to be eradicated, to be wiped out. And so there's this intense rule of Nero that has taken place. But now there's Domitian, it's, it's actually a new wave of persecution. With each emperor, there came new emperor worship. And it was its own religion. It was the civic religion. It was what everybody did. They worshiped the emperor because they were the embodiment of God. And so Nero's gone. And so instead of there being a sigh of relief for the church, there's a new emperor, and to these seven churches in Asia Minor, there's expressed pressure put on them to begin to worship Domitian as God and to participate in this civic religion of emperor worship. 
And so with this new emperor and this new pressure, you can imagine the question of the church, how do we withstand this? This is just gonna happen over and over where we're going to get this pressure put on us, emperor after emperor it would seem, where we're going to be forced to either bow down and worship and engage in this civic worship of the day or face persecution and hardship. Another thing that's happening is that as we approach the end of the first hundred years, the, the uh, reach the, the early 90s, um, 90 AD, you have a, the first generation of the church is actually beginning to come to an end. In fact, John, who's writing this letter, he's an old man and it's to be uh, believed that he's the last of the, the living. If it is the apostle John, he's the last of the apostles. And so not only him, but you can see the first generation of Christians, those who professed faith in Christ, they're all starting to die off. And now the question is, will the church survive into a second generation? Jesus has ascended to heaven. These first eyewitnesses now are going to be gone. You have those who received that word directly from that first generation. And now you're moving on to the next wave of Christians. Will the church survive? There's questions about what will happen. Christianity was an unrecognized religion. The Jews were recognized in their practices. They, yes, they faced persecution, but, but at least they were recognized. Christians were a rogue group. They weren't Jewish, nor were they part of the civilian religion. And so they were susceptible to being squashed. And the question was, they were functioning outside the law. So the question is, are they going to survive? Will they survive with a new generation of believers? Will this new generation carry forward what they've received from this, the, the first believers? Or will this faith in Jesus Christ, will it be eradicated from the earth? It's in this context that John receives this revelation of the victorious Jesus this church that is potentially on the brink of wondering, will we even make it into 100 AD? Will we even make it out of the double digits to see ourselves survive the next generation? Will we make it through this next wave of persecution that's coming upon us, pounding after pounding of being this minority group within our communities? Will we make it through this next generation? Can the church survive? The pressure to why don't you give up this make-believe religion about this Christ who some would say was crucified and buried and, and that, that should just uh, die off with that first wave of believers. Why don't you just give in and just start participating and make it easy on yourself and begin to worship Domitian as God here on earth. Engage in the civic worship. It's going to make it easier on you. And so it's in this context will the church survive i think this question is not unlike what many christians in the united states are asking today and it's to this type of church that jesus reveals himself what he says is you don't need refined doctrine you need a vision of jesus christ and who he truly is when you are tempted to just scrap it or the persecution feels like it's too much or just be easier to kind of blend the faith and, and just make it a, a, a blending of a little bit of Christianity and, and a lot of civic worship and, and 
politic and, and just engage in everything else that the rest of the world is in, Jesus says you don't need uh, just more doctrine or more Bible studies. You need a picture of who Jesus is. And so that's exactly what Jesus provides to his church. He imparts this vision to John who then pins it and then passes it along to the churches and says, listen, church, you who think you're on the brink, you who think this is dangerous territory where the church won't exist any longer, where you think it's all just going to fade away. He says, let me give you a picture of what Jesus gave to me about himself. And maybe you'll have a whole different view of what the church is about and who it is that is running this thing called the church. And if I can encourage you, I'm going to read one more time just a portion of this opening passage of scripture. But if you're comfortable in doing so, I'd invite you just to close your eyes and listen to this one who is speaking to a church that is concerned, will it make it out of the first century? Will it survive a new generation? This is the one who is in charge of the church. Jesus reveals himself. Let me read it. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Listen, this picture is not of a church that is on the brink of extinction, but of a king of kings, a ruler over kings of the earth who is coming, and the one who has true dominion. John gets this revelation from Jesus, and Jesus is saying, tell my church, John, that they're not on the brink of extinction. They are serving the one true king, the one true ruler, Encourage them not to give in to this civic religion, to this worship of emperors, but let their eyes be fixed towards the clouds and the one who's coming on the clouds, who is the ruler of all nations, the one who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Or as Hebrew says, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the Jesus who is not on the brink of extinction. This is Jesus, the true authority, the true ruler, the one who has true dominion upon the earth. John, encourage these churches that are concerned about the status. Are they going to make it? Tell them not only are you going to make it, you serve the one who will cause you to thrive in lands and people among peoples who would oppress you. You will thrive and you will continue to serve in my kingdom beyond what you could even fathom. The encouragement is to get their eyes off of the circumstances around them and to look to Christ, who is the author and perfecter of their faith. I want to finish with this encouragement because it's the same encouragement that John 
through this revelation of Jesus as passing along to the churches. We need a vision of the conquering king, not a vision of Jesus who fits nicely into our lives, but of the ruler of rulers who has authority to rule in every aspect of our lives. This is why we read Revelation. It is the worship of Jesus that causes us to rise up, to give him praise, and to not water down the gospel and make it a Jesus and type of gospel. To not try to incorporate and fit Jesus into other aspects of our lives, but to make him ruler and Lord, to give him dominion over every aspect of our lives. To not allow him to be the Americanized Jesus, to not allow him to be Andy's personal Jesus, to not allow him to be the, the Foursquare, the New Horizons Jesus. He is the Almighty, the one who has no other name tags, who has no other subtitles. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And our eyes, as we fix heavenward towards him, there is no fear of distinction, of, of extinction. There's no fear of being wiped out or eradicated. There's no fear that there's an end to his kingdom, that somehow a civic government is going to overthrow his people and his purposes. Whatever's happening in the culture around us, listen, Christianity, specifically Jesus and his people, not the institution, but the church, the people of Jesus, were not threatened. We're not at risk of losing something. Quite the opposite. We are advancing forcefully with the kingdom of God that liberates people and sets them free in the hope of Christ, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that says he's coming. He's coming to make all things right. And we are liberators, deliverers in his name that bring his kingdom. We're not in the brink of extinction, the brink of seeing all things fall apart and be lost with the next generation. We are of those who press on and thrive because he is king and he's coming again on the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Even so, amen and let it be. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this book of worship. We are so excited to just continue to go deeper in it. And we ask you, Lord, to help it to stir our hearts of worship of you. Lord, to get our eyes off of the temporary and the things that are so fluid around us. And, and Lord, to, and the temptation to engage in civic worship. And, and, and Lord, to, to feel threatened or to feel small in a world that comes against us. But Lord, that we would fix our eyes on you and the revelation of who you are, the Lord of glory, the Almighty, the one who has dominion, and the one who has redeemed us by your blood. So Lord, we look to you. We pray that as we go through this series together, it would just expand our worship and we would celebrate and look to you in ways that we haven't for a long time, maybe never before, that it would just ignite within us a passion to worship you, Jesus, the King of Kings and the Almighty. May we see this revelation of you and worship you like never before. In Jesus' name, amen. You can find more resources for this service at nhgj.org. Email us your prayer requests to prayer at nh4gj.org. If you are a new follower of Jesus, we have a free resource for you called Following Jesus. To receive a copy, send a request to info at nh4gj.org. If you would like to partner with our ministry through giving, 
You can do that online at nhgj.org giving or by mail to 641 Horizon Drive, Grand Junction, Colorado, 81506. Thank you for being with us and may the Lord bless you.